So I told you uh, a couple minutes ago about uh, the question and answers that we're having on Wednesday nights. And I've gotten more questions than I'm actually going to be able to answer given the short season that we have set aside for this. One of the questions I was asked was, what, what are the origins of Advent? Um, uh, the person asked me, uh, knowing that uh, I've been keeping it in front of us for a number of years and speaking historically about how many of our brothers and sisters uh, celebrate Advent and that we see ourselves as part of that great historical movement, that we're not set aside by ourselves, but there are others that are doing this as well. And so it was a really good question, and it caused me to dig in a little bit more than I usually do uh, with regard to some of these things, but the question of the, the origins of Advent and how did it all, all come about. Uh, well, like, like other things on the Christian calendar and the historic creeds, they are born out of some sort of controversy. And thank God for that, where the brothers and sisters in earlier years, when confronted with heresy, went to work and dug into the Word and put together statements that, set, that refuted error. Oh, that we would be doing that all the more even today, splintered as we are amongst so many different denominations and so many different groups. It's one of the things that weakens us, particularly when it comes to full frontal attack, if you please. Advent arose in the 4th century, late 4th century, and it came from the Council of Saragossa in Spain. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this or not, and it got together to counteract the movement that was headed up by a person uh, named Priscillian. And so this movement around this person, Priscillian, grew up, and it was called Priscillianism. And there was a, a, the, the fundamental tenet of this, of this movement was a, was a harsh duality. Uh, if some of you might be familiar with the term Gnosticism, which was a second century phenomenon in the early church, and it rigidly divided light from darkness, and it rigidly divided the body, particularly the body from the soul, so that when God became man, it was an anathema to these heretics. In other words, God could not become man because m the body was evil. It was, a, it was a jailhouse for the soul that you had to endure until you die, and then your soul sprung from this jailhouse, if you please. Well, Christians from all generations know that that's heresy. That's just a lie, because the material world has been created by God and therefore good. So we have to be very careful about this harsh duality that separates the body from the soul. We're going to see when we get back to Romans and Romans chapter 12 that we're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord that our bodies are a gift given to us that we are to steward and we are to glorify God with our body. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So this council got together in Spain because this is where the heresy was flourishing and they pushed back on this and said, no, we cannot hold to this dualism because we're made as an ensouled body or an embodied soul, however you want to put, put that. And thank God they did that. So what ended up coming out of that was uh, a month-long setting-aside period of time where the incarnation of Jesus would be dwelt upon. And it, it developed centuries later into a catechetical time, a time of teaching for those who were preparing for baptism. It's a beautiful melding of history as well as teaching within the local church that rebuffed, that declared as heresy, this movement that was threatening the church and causing all kinds of havoc to go forward. 
And so this season was set aside where the coming of the Lord would be focused on. It developed even further to move not only from just a concentration on the coming of Jesus the first time, God becoming man in the incarnation of the person of Jesus, but it developed as well to include a second understanding, the understanding of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so Advent, which is a Latin word for coming, really focuses on on the two comings of Jesus. The first coming of Jesus back in the first century, God becoming man. And then we live in the light of his second coming or the second advent, if you have it. Some of the higher church liturgies include a third advent. I actually, I, I came across this this week. I actually love it. The third advent is the coming of Jesus into the person's life. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? We live between the comings of Jesus. He's come and he's been born, uh, virgin birth, miraculous through the Holy Spirit. He's coming again, and we live in anticipation of that arrival. The question that we all have in the Advent season, has he come into your life? That's really what it's all about at the end of the day. So for those who wanted to know at least a little bit of the origin of Advent, there you go, no charge. Season has a twofold emphasis reflection and anticipation. The season has a twofold emphasis reflection, a looking back, and an anticipation, a looking forward. I've got to ask you, for those of you who are connecting the dots right now, I've got to ask you is there a better text to have on a communion Sunday? It, mid, midway through the week, it hit me, and I thought, spectacular! How fantastic is this? Because in a moment, we're going to come to the table together and we're going to reflect on what God has done in our past. And we're going to look forward in anticipation of what this promise-keeping God is going to do in our future. Reflection and anticipation. This, too, is the reason why we celebrate the tender mercy of our God during Advent. This, too, is the reason why we celebrate communion. Do this as often as you gather together. Reflection and anticipation. Last week, listen now, listen. Last week we heard the melodious sound of Mary's voice. Last week we heard Mary's song, the Magnificat, a Latin word for the word magnify that begins her song, my soul magnifies the Lord. Mary's Magnificat. Today, we're led in song a little bit deeper, maybe even a baritone. This morning, we're led in song by Zechariah, a priest described like this, righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth are two of a very small list of people in the Bible that are described without clay feet. It's fascinating how the Advent story has those people, Mary, even Joseph, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna. These are a concentration of people in two chapters of the Gospel of Luke where you don't have the comma or you don't have the asterisk 
oh yeah, he was king over Israel, but he was also a murderous adulterer, was King David. It's not said about these people. It's, it's an amazing thing to watch here. So we hear the baritone voice of Zechariah this morning. His theme is the mercy of God in salvation. The theme of our Advent series this year is the mercy of God. And now what Zechariah is going to do in his prophetic song is call out to us and accentuate the mercy of God in salvation. Now watch what he's going to do with this because it's going to broaden our categories, because you hear salvation, and the first thing you think, and the first thing that I think, living in the Western Hemisphere, which is marked by a rugged individualism, is I think of myself being saved. Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, which, by the way, you're hard-pressed to find that language in the Bible. It's a, it's a, actually, it's a fairly recent phenomenon, this language of personal Lord and Savior. I mean, the idea is there, but the language is not. It's a very, very fascinating thing to explore a little bit in just about how individualistic it became. When you read the Gospels and you see the language of salvation, you realize that, oh my, the, the concept of salvation in the Gospels, in the New Testament, is much wider than my soul getting saved. It's never less than that, and it certainly includes that. But when Zechariah, the priest, the righteous priest, prophesies about the salvation of God. Watch how wide this guy is. I mean, I don't know if he was physically wide, but watch how wide his mind goes. It's glorious to contemplate how wide God is. Way wider than my own soul. And yet, includes my soul. His theme is the mercy of God and salvation. He blesses God, 68 and 69, 168 and 69. He opens with a blessing for salvation, and then watch what he does. Salvation, he's going to show us how salvation was promised, verses 70 to 75, and then verses 76 to 79, he's going to show us how salvation is being prepared. I have been saved, I am saved, I am being saved is a thoroughly going way of thinking about the concept. The blessing for salvation he gives, and then salvation promised, and then salvation prepared, he shows us. A looking back and a looking forward. Let's look at the blessing, the banner that flies over Zechariah's prophecy. Let's look at the blessing for salvation in Luke chapter 1, in verses 68 and 69. Births of John and Jesus have been announced. We saw that. We saw, the, we saw the birth announcements story last week. Mary and Elizabeth have visited. Mary has magnified the Lord. And now the first of the two births take place. It's really an amazing thing how much space is given to John the Baptist in Luke's telling of the birth of Jesus. JB is a big deal. He is, he is the hinge of the Bible. He is the hinge in the Bible. He, meaning he's going to close up Old Testament prophecy and teaching, and he's going to open up and, and pave the way for the one who is going to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophesied. John the Baptist is an enormous player in the drama of Holy Scripture. Jesus himself is going to say so a little bit later on in his life. None greater than John the Baptist, yet those who are the least in the kingdom are greater than John. Let that sink in. 
Let that sink in. First of the two births now take place. Now the time, this is, this is the introduction before we get to those verses, the time for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son, verse 57. This is an act that the scriptures tell us in verse 57 that displayed God's great mercy to Elizabeth, sparing her the shame of barrenness. It's an honor-shame culture. We live in a, in a truth-error culture. First century culture was an honor and shame. It wasn't so much that Elizabeth was described as wrong as much as she was bringing shame to her family's name. If you have any Middle Eastern origin in your, in your DNA, you know more about what it is that I'm talking about. I'm sure Dr. Nader understands that much better than I do, coming from the Middle East and honor and shame. It's not that you've done something wrong. Instead, you've brought shame upon your family name, and that is horrific. So being barren causes people to whisper. Can you imagine? Can you imagine, Noel? People were gossiping in the first century. I'm so glad we don't do that anymore. Why are you laughing? Sparing her the shame of barrenness. Following the tradition of the firstborn male, you heard me read it, being named after the father, friends and neighbors now rightly and automatically assume that this will be Zech Jr. He's going to be Zechariah Jr. It's the assumption that's being made. Mama, because dad, remind you now, has been silenced by Gabriel because he doubted. So poor guy walking around with the first century equivalent of an iPad, um, unable to speak, uh, now has to let his wife do the talking. And his wife says, no, 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 he's going to be named John. And that, whoa, we don't do that here. You name him Zechariah, he's the firstborn male. So the room shifts to the father. What is he going to say? Is he going to embarrass his wife? No, he's going to whip out his iPad. He's going to take out the tablet and something to scratch with, and he's going to write his name, probably in Aramaic, his name is John. Ooh, I, I guess the woman had it right, after all. Can you imagine? Part of me wonders, now Elizabeth's all righteous, and, and, but part of me just wants to believe, just for half a second, Elizabeth just turned and went, <clears throat> I, I doubt she did, but maybe she did. Zechariah Sr., Restored in voice, when in agreement with his wife, he declares that the boy's name is John. And now, of course, that sets off a whole lot of holy gossip. What then will this child be, for the hand of the Lord was with him? Well, when you get a message like that, and you're a righteous priest, there's not much of an option. The Spirit of the living God falls afresh on him, and now his mouth, far from being closed, is going to be loosed like it's never been loosed before. Blessed, here's his theme, similar to Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord. Think about it now. Get caught up in all of this. Allow your emotions to be involved here. Mary gets swept up. Zechariah gets swept up, and the first thing that comes out of these godly people's mouths is, praise the Lord. Mary, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Zechariah says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. 
What comes out of your mouth when the Spirit of the living God meets you? Notice how big he's praying here. It's, it's not just his house. Obviously, as a good priest, he's representing. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, of his people. He's coming. It's happening. For he's visited and he's redeemed his people. He's already speaking about the future. He's redeemed. It's done. He redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation, a mighty Savior. That's what that expression means. Uh, the horn is a symbol of power. The horn of salvation, a mighty Savior for us in the house, in the royal line of his servant David. So be working with me now and see how Zechariah is putting his Bible together. That Zechariah, seeing the birth of John the Baptist and knowing that John's going to be a forerunner of Jesus, is now, I mean, it's just happening. Dominoes are just falling one after another now, and it's all beginning to make sense to this priest who's been so faithful and so diligent in offering prayers and sacrifices on behalf of the people. And now he's actually going to get to see it. Can you imagine? It's the promise of liberation that's been made and kept. This is where I want to see, I want to dig in here a little bit with you and see that he's not just simply talking about the salvation, the personal salvation of the individual. He's, he's got a much broader view of salvation. He's redeeming a people. That's why we've been working, especially in Romans 9, 10, and 11, we've been working on the story of Scripture and how you're part of the story, and all of your stuff only makes sense when you understand where you are in the story. It's, it's an amazing thing to realize how rich our roots are, how deep they are, how extraordinary this unfolding story is all about. It's a liberation of a people. It's not just the saving of the individual souls, but he's got a people in mind that he's redeeming, that he's buying back. And he's thinking of all the great events in the Old Testament that symbolize this redemption, the greatest of which is the Exodus and the coming of Jesus and the new Exodus. Jesus is the true Israel who is fulfilling all that national Israel did not. And as the fulfillment, we are part of his people. It's extraordinary to give contemplation to. He's visited and he's redeemed the people and he's raised up a horn of salvation in the royal line of his servant David, just like he said he would. That's the banner. That's Zechariah's blessing for salvation. Now watch what he does. There's a pivot. Watch what he does now. In verse 70, he's going to unpack some of these things by looking back. Prove me on this now. Keep your finger on the text and watch where we go here. He's, he's, he's displayed the banner for us. Blessed be the Lord. This is what the Lord has done. He said, now let me walk it back here a little bit. Let me, let, me, let me praise the Lord. Let me continue to bless him. But let me also put words in your mouth to preach and to pray and to understand exactly where your roots are. Salvation promised. And he looks back. He, he sees out of this servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies, past and present, and from the hand of all who hate us. So he's looking back. He sees the connection with David, and now he's looking back. And he said, oh, this was prophesied long ago. Somebody foretold this was going to happen. You look, at, you look at a passage, just one example, I'll give you Jeremiah chapter 23. 
when you go to you go to one of these prophecies, Jeremiah 23, I'm I, I I'm guessing that Zechariah had something like this in his mind. Jeremiah 23 and verse 5. Jeremiah prophesies, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David. See, there it is, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. This is what's going on in Zechariah's mind. The holy prophets from old, Jeremiah 23, foretold that there would be one who would come from us, from our enemies. Now, he's still talking about his, his, his people, Israel, of which we are now a part. We are the completion as God is working, that we are completing the plan that God has made with Israel so that we now are incorporated with them as the people of God. Are you following me? Are you understanding that? Are you seeing how all that works together? And so instead of being worried about being run over by the Babylonians or the Assyrians like the nation of Israel was, no, now the work of Jesus and what he has finished has overcome our enemies. Yes, we have brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted. Let's, not, let's, let's be very careful in taking up language of persecution here and now. We American Christians are not being persecuted. And I know that might make some fur fly in some places, but this is not persecution. To say that we're being persecuted is to demean our brothers and sisters who are not going to make it to sundown today. Nevertheless, the work of Christ has not only relieved the people of Israel from their enemies, but he's also overcome the work of the evil one who is our enemy, prowls around looking to devour you. His work has been done. He's on a very short leash that Jesus Christ holds in his hand. This is a word for us this very day. But not only from the holy prophets of old, keep reading with me in verse 72, but to show the mercy promised to our fathers promise to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. Zechariah is just caught, he's just walking it back. Remember the prophets, remember Abraham, remember the covenant. Wow, he just, he can't get the words out of his mouth fast enough. He sees it all coming down and all cinching together in the person of Jesus, the one whom his son is going to point others to. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Micah, chapter 7, verse 20. Micah chapter 7 and verse 20. You will show faithfulness to, to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is Micah around the same time as Isaiah, about 700 or so years before the coming of Jesus. Micah, from where he is, is looking back to the promise and the covenant that was made to Abraham in anticipation of what was going to come. Zechariah now, 700 years later, looks back to Micah, who was looking back to Abraham, and it's all connecting. Right here. Here he is. Can you imagine? The oath that he swore to our father Abraham, Genesis 22, if you want to go back there and look at it. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies. Now, here's, here's the rub. Here's the rub. All of that is fulfilled. And Zechariah, good, good, uh, good pastor that he is, says, says why, why did he do that? That we might serve him without fear. Verse 74, that we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is a priest talking now. Isn't that beautiful language? That we might serve him. Why has God saved you? 
Why has God overcome your enemies? So that you might serve him. You might serve him the length of your days without fear. Now, we've talked a lot about fear. In this very context, fear comes over the people when he's named John and his fear. See, remember what I told you about now, the fear continuum. Fear that comes over all the people is just awe, it's wonder. They're undone. This kind of fear is that when you're in Christ, you have zero fear about what any, what any of your enemies can do to you. Because the worst thing they can do to you is kill you. That's the worst thing that they can do. And when you're dead and you're in Christ, you gain. To live as Christ and to die is gain. Is gain. Why? Because you get more Jesus. That's the worst thing that they can do to you. And they, and they think, like they thought with Jesus, that you're ending the story. <laughs> the story is just beginning. You all right with that? So serve him. Let it rip. Whether you're 14, or how old's your father? 114? Yeah. Whether you're 14 or 114, you've got one life to live. Serve him all your days in holiness and righteousness because they're yours in Christ. That's what this is all about. Not so that you can have bigger pillows in the den, but so you can take risks for Jesus. That we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. One of my favorite little prophets is Zephaniah. Love Zephaniah. Love Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3 and 15. Zephaniah 3.15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. Somebody say amen, please. Thank you. You see how he's... See how he's tying it together? You know by now how thrilled I get. And I, I let my emotion go when I watch how the Bible fits together. When I watch these inspired individuals put their Bibles together, it, out, it undoes me. And I pray it does that to you. So he looks back so that he can look forward and watch how this ends. He now, he's, he's going to pivot on that word of service. He's going to pivot in 76, 176 and go forward. Now he's going to talk to his son. You child. Zechariah taught his son well. We know that because years later, John the Baptist would proclaim, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. When did John say that? John said that when Jesus arrived on the scene. And then some of the most famous words in all of the scripture out of JB's mouth says what? He must increase and I must what? Decrease. John chapter 3 and verses 30 and 31. So imagine all of life a stage. And John the Baptist has got sent a stage for a little while. He doesn't want it. He deflects it. He's, he has come in the power and the spirit of Elijah we know that earlier in Luke chapter 1. We know that, but he doesn't want the attention. He's a little rough around the edges. He probably would not be hired by any church today to be a pastor. First of all, he, you know, he, he wore messed up stuff. You know, he liked burlap. And he ate locusts. 
You put that on a resume and no search committee is going to take him. He was, he was locked in. He was laser focused. You've been around people like that. They can be a little annoying. JB was locked in. Didn't want the spotlight and get out of it as fast as he possibly could. Jesus arose onto the scene. Picture the stage now, right? And Jesus comes in. And John brings a tear to my eye. Jesus walks in, spotlight goes on him, and John does this. Does this. And he's gone. He dies a horrific death. Has his head chopped off by a drunk. Why, why did God let that happen? John the Baptist. There are some ways that are beyond our comprehension. But he fulfilled what God had called him to. And may that be your word as mine as well. He must increase. I must decrease. This is what he's saying to his son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Why? Because you'll go before the Lord to prepare his way. See, Zechariah got a word. He's prophesying. Spirit of the, Spirit of the living God filled him. He's prophesying. And he's telling his baby. Can you imagine? Brings a tear to your eye. Many of you in this room prayed over your children when they were born. Filled with wonder in that moment, we said, Lord, your child, whatever you want to do with your child, it's your child. Oh, we're real spiritual in those moments. And then your daughter gets 14, and she wants to go to Africa. And the Lord says, I didn't forget. Zechariah, I'm thoroughly convinced, knew where John was going to be going. You'll go before the Lord to prepare his way. Malachi foretold of John the Baptist. Malachi 3.1 Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. I'm giving you all this Old Testament to show how it all hangs together right here in this one prophecy. You'll go before the Lord to prepare his way. Verse 77, even more specifically, you'll give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. See, this is why I say salvation is never less than the forgiveness of your sins, but it's always more. So yes, JB would lead the way for Jesus, who, when trusted, would forgive your sins. But oh, there's such a big picture that's being painted the moment your sins are forgiven. You're part of a much bigger story that's going on, and it's about him. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Why? And here's the theme of our entire Advent series, because all because of the tender mercy of our God. All of this. Hear me, church. Hear me. All that I'm proclaiming is all under the banner of mercy. Not just mercy, but tender mercy. The word, the word tender in the original language, it's, 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 it's guts. It's, it's not a pretty word. Guts, entrails, intestines. In the first century, that was a way of saying, talking about 
affection. My whole heart is in this. It's not a gut feeling. That's way too subjective. My gut, my whole being, the tender mercy, God's fully invested in this. It's not something that he's kind of doing on the side. Zechariah raises it up. All of this, the coming of JB, the fulfilling of prophecy, the, the coming of Jesus Christ, all under the umbrella of the tender mercy of our God, which is expressed for us in verse 78. And how does he declare that? This is where we're done. Watch how this sets us up for this table. Because of the tender mercy of our God, we're hanging a little bit. We're waiting. Zechariah, what exactly is this? What exactly displays the tender mercy of our God? Please, I'm pleading with you. The tender mercy of our God is displayed supremely, supremely in this one who called here the sunrise. You do not see God display mercy any more compassionately than you do in the sending of his son, Jesus. For all that God does that is compassionate, all that God does that is merciful and good, all of that is subsumed under the coming of the sunrise. That Zechariah prophesies like this. The sunrise has come as promised. To do what? To do two things, and this is how we opened our service, to give light. Now, we don't have to walk it back because Zechariah does it for us. Watch this. In 79, to give light, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. This is gospel language. This is not the four spiritual laws. This is why I want to expand you here a little bit. So when you're sharing the gospel with somebody or you're talking about what is salvation, you, you can use language like this because this is a righteous priest under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And what he's saying is you're in darkness. You're living in the shadow of death. People, the, the, the evil one is throwing shade on you. But there's one that's come, and he's a beacon of light into that darkness so that it dispels death. It dispels darkness. It's not like a light that goes on and then goes off, or a candle that eventually burns out. This is an eternal flame. This is an eternal flame that takes you out of darkness, transfers you into the kingdom of light. That's what Paul's going to say in Colossians but it also removes you from the shadow of death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will what? Watch how it all comes around. I will fear no evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff comfort me. Right here is the shepherd who pursues you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And secondly, this is also part of the gospel. Also part of the gospel. We, we need to get beyond Paul's categories to have Jesus' categories in terms of what the gospel is all about. The gospel at the end of the day is about the kingdom and the coming king who reigns over your soul and offers you salvation, yes. but he's also come to guide our feet into the way of peace. Implication, you're walking on your own, you're lost. To guide your feet, if you're not in Christ, to guide your feet into the way of, what's the opposite of peace? Chaos. My goodness, 
Is there a more apropos word for our world than this right now? My, my, my. It, it undoes me. This one who has come, appropriately entitled the sunrise, has come to give light. Lord, this is a dark time. Give light. Has come to give peace. Lord, this is chaos right now. There's disunity. Peace, shalom. You heard me say that. Peace. It's not just kind of like this yoga kind of, mm, I now have peace with the universe. That's not what that is. Peace is shalom. There's nothing in your life that shalom does not touch. Shalom deals with your health. Shalom deals with your interpersonal relationships. Shalom deals with your family. Shalom deals with your nation. So that when Jesus comes and guides your feet into the way of peace, he's got the whole kit and caboodle in his head, not just your personal salvation. I'm pleading and praying that this gets in deeply because this is what will transform our world. We're not called to transform our world. We're called to follow Christ, which will transform our world. But it's the right one before the other. And if this is our call, if this is what guides us, I'm going to ask you, how does this change the game? How does this change the way that we think about what's going on around us? The sunrise has come to give light, John 8, 12. Jesus himself will say, I am the light of the world. See how all roads in Scripture end in Jesus. I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. He has come to guide us into the way of peace. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 27, I give you my peace. My peace I give to you. Fear not. Fear not. My peace I give to you. Say that to yourself a hundred times before you go to bed tonight. My peace has been, God's peace has been given to me in Christ. God's peace has been given to me in Christ. God's peace has been given to me in Christ. I'm whole. I'm complete. He's my shepherd. He's watching over me. He's guiding me. When the edge is afraid, he's your peace. This is what Advent's about. This is the message of salvation. This is the one who Isaiah describes in 9.6, Isaiah 9.6, as the Prince of Peace. He has come for peasants, and he's come for priests. He's come for the peasant girl, Mary. And he's come on the other end for a righteous priest and everybody in between. Don't lose that, please. Because there are, there are some within Christendom today that do not believe that. The gospel is only for certain types. He came for peasants 
and for priests. He's come for you. He's come for you. In mercy, he's come for you. We will humble ourselves, dear God, as we anticipate looking back over what it is that you have done for us. As we come to the communion table, we will look forward, Father, in anticipation of the return of your Son, Jesus. Father, many of us, relatively speaking, are in good health and wealth. And the thoughts of Jesus coming back is something that is out there. And yet, the way that it's described in Scripture, it leaves us expecting it imminently. Oh, there are things that need to be done before that happens, admittedly. But we're not to be given to calculation. We're to be given to a, a life that's expectant. So in this holy season, I pray for these dear saints, live and online, that we would indeed look back and see how you've been faithful in our lives. But that we would not stay there. That we would spring forward and say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Bless our partaking of these elements. As strange as it is under these circumstances. It's good to long, dear God. I, I, I long for I long for the tray to be passed around, for the common loaf to be broken. But that longing reminds me of a capital L longing that I pray for my brothers and sisters as well. Would you fill us with a holy longing for things of heaven, for things of Jesus? We ask it humbly in his name. Amen. Amen.